All right, hello everyone. Welcome to the weekly UK Sangha. Um, I'm here with my good friends, uh, Victor and Robert. Um, I picked out a sutta to read today, and I was just about to mention that uh, um, the language and words of these suttas, uh, when uh, read and contemplated and uh, followed along, is kind of designed to be uh, meditative. So um, uh, the reading of the sutta um, isn't really for the purpose of like learning something uh, intellectually. It's it's more uh, meant uh, as a almost a guided meditation. So uh, let the words uh, sink into uh, uh, the very essence of your mind um, past the past the um, superficial uh, critical thinking, although we don't turn that all the way off. That's part of it. But um, the design, uh, the, the, at least the way I, I'm, I'm uh, sharing the sutta is designed um, to strike you uh, into the heart. So sort of evoke uh, the kind of powerful feelings um, that I get from reading it. So um, that's what I'm trying to communicate here. And then also, it's a good uh, conversation starter. So there's lots of stuff that comes up. And uh, if there's any comments, questions about the sutta or the contents of the sutta or an explanation of the sutta, we can talk about that. Or anything else um, unrelated to the sutta is it's it's all uh, it's all free game. Okay, so uh, here we go. This sutta is uh, it's from the Samyutta Nikaya, fifty six point eleven, and it's the Bhikkhu Bodhi translation, and the title of it is called "Setting in Motion the Wheel of the Dhamma." Like, see, like, we can just stop at the title and just uh, soak that in a, a little bit and just kind of, like, sit on that for a little, like, every single word is um, very kind of, has some kind of, like, spiritual power to it. I, I don't know how to explain it, but setting in motion the wheel of the Dhamma. That just sounds like, I don't know, how does that make you feel, Victor? <laughs> Sorry, yeah, there you go. Um, yeah, um, I, I don't have specific words to describe it, but it's always good to just get your set of beliefs or the things that you try to practice and just read it off from like the text, right? Like, uh, like a church tradition and whatever. So yeah, yeah, it's, it's so very powerful. It, it yeah it, it evokes it evokes like a sense of like authority and like order and like power to it like like setting in motion the wheel of the dhamma that's just like that's like a power move like the buddha is like setting in motion the wheel of the dhamma and it, if you think about it that's what actually happened because here we are today uh discussing what he what uh this guy had prophesied that he was gonna do. So like, so just think about it. Imagine you're, you're um, 
you're you meditate and you discover truths for yourself in your own meditation and then you start teaching the truths are so profound so powerful that at first you think that nobody is going to understand it but then uh you you see that some people have little dust in their eyes and could possibly understand it so you start teaching to uh the people around you just like Think about it like your coworkers, just people of your day and age, just people around you. And then you realize how powerful these teachings actually are, that you 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 understand that this will proliferate into the future um, indefinitely. So you're setting in motion the wheel of the Dhamma and you're saying that's what I'm doing right now and and predicting that that will continue on into the future instead of just uh putter uh sputter out like most most spiritual teachers or teachings um either get their content from another spiritual um prophet or something or it just kind of like uh sputters out and just goes into like uh obscurity but uh so imagine what you discover meditatively is so powerful that you know you already know it's going to catch on and uh, become a thing for uh, um, centuries now. So uh, yeah, so just reading the title, setting in motion the wheel of the Dhamma, and then realize that um, that's another way to talk about cause and effect and dependent origination. So um, think about instead of uh, being obsessed about uh, the story of me, so me as a person, and just uh, the small um, the small box of the only the things that happened in your life, realize all the things that led up to it. So, so much uh, things happened since the beginning of the universe or, or the beginningless beginning of the universe and everything that happened throughout human history and all of the everything that went into play to lead up to this moment right it's it's a huge uh body of things that had to happen in order for everything to fall perfectly that the way it is right now so just this is these these uh things are like uh contemplative tools Right. Um, we're contemplating something to get those feelings of uh, awe going like, wow, that wow state, you know. How like the things that you normally take for granted, like. Uh, were you going to say something? No, yeah, um, just just I think like a few weeks ago, suddenly I just stopped in. It was like. Okay, so what exactly is like daylight? It's basically like this huge lamp that is just the sun, and like at night you're just facing just the emptiness of the universe. But like I tried talking to my coworkers about it, but it sounds a bit like crazy. But I'm like, just yeah. don't you just just re- it's so crazy because we just take like day the day like for granted like as a concept. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. but it's just yeah. just uh yeah, it's <laughs> dumbfounding. Yeah, it's dumbfounding. Like, what, what, what is really going on right now? We're we're standing on a giant rock that's spin that's spinning at an incre- incredible velocity, velocity orbiting around a giant ball of flame that you can't make direct eye contact with, or or you'll go blind. 
<laughs> and like, yeah, normally we just think like we don't think about this is just like the default environment. So obviously we fil we filter all kinds of stuff out for practical purposes so we can get from point A to point B. But um, the point of meditation is to stop filtering stuff out to get from point A to point B. Stop and just look at w the miracles that are unfolding before your very eyes. The miracle of life itself. It's uh, no one. It's almost unfathom. It's un inconceivable, like unfathomable. Like, how is this happening? No, <laughs> kind of a, like the bi bigger questions. Like, why is there something rather than nothing? But there here something is. I mean, the, the point is not to go into like a mental um, or philosophical like rabbit hole and just get lost in existentialism or something like that, like most philosophers. But the point is to evoke that sense of looking at things that you don't normally look at. So realizing the truth of reality uh, in its full uh, broad spe spectrum without filtering all of the stuff out um, through the lens of uh, me. So you just look at things with an unbiased lens. So let me let me uh, get into the sutta. I think uh, I did enough uh, did enough dancing around it. But, uh... Okay, setting in motion the wheel of the Dhamma. Thus have I heard. On one occasion, the Blessed One was dwelling at Baranasi, in the Deer Park at Isipatana. And you have to forgive me because uh, normally. This is like a new location for me. Normally, it's just like Jetta's Grove. So I just I just roll through the words because I've read them so many times. But uh, it's kind of like the Sutta's lore. It's always like starts like that, isn't it? It's yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, no, that's another Squirrels Grove or Sutta. <laughs> yeah, no, the the Sutta's lore, like it's kind of like a lore, like it's <laughs> formulated like you're reading like a lore of. It, it 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 starts off the way that it's introduced. Even the word "thus have I heard," <laughs> like like it doesn't even say like it doesn't even just get right into what the Buddha said. It's "thus have I heard," so it's not even saying this is what the Buddha said. He's saying this is what I heard the Buddha say, because this is all this that's all you really had access to. If you're investigating the Dhamma correctly, realize that you only have access to what you hear, see, feel, touch, etc. So the only way that you can say what the Buddha said is by saying, this is what I heard him say. Right. So each each word has a meaning to it that's uh, that has a specific purpose and why it's worded like that. And then obviously, like there's certain problems with uh, some of the translations and stuff like that um, don't really uh, get across the real meaning of the Pali. But I think for the most part, Bhikkhu Bodhi uh, does a pretty good job. So um, you can uh, really pay attention to the wording and uh, get a lot of meaning out of that. Okay. Thus have I heard on one occasion, the Blessed One was dwelling at Baranasi in the Deer Park at Isipatana. There the Blessed One addressed the bhikkhus of the group of five thus. See, it's only five people there. 
So imagine talking to five people and saying, like, this is setting in motion the wheel of the Dhamma that's going to continue for thousands of years into the future. That's like some, like, fucking cocky ass shit to say. Like, like the balls on this guy. Like, he's him. Like, <laughs> you're talking to five people. <laughs> but he but he was right, though. We're <laughs> Here we are talking about it. <laughs> yeah. All right. Because these two extremes should not be followed by one who has gone forth into homelessness. What two? The pursuit of sensual happiness and sensual pleasures, which is low, vulgar, the way of worldlings, ignoble, unbeneficial, and the pursuit of self-mortification, which is painful, ignoble, unbeneficial. Without veering towards either of these extremes, the Tathagata has awakened to the middle way, which gives rise to vision, which gives rise to knowledge, which leads to peace, to direct knowledge, to enlightenment, to Nibbana. Okay, so um, the middle way. Not overindulging in sensual pleasures, but also not um punishing yourself and starving yourself and uh practicing the other extreme of asceticism so the idea is not to repress and punish yourself and and avoid sensual pleasures at all costs because they're evil that's the other extreme but without overindulging and losing your your um, mindfulness in the senses and then going into uh, running on the hamster wheel of sensual pleasures that never really comes to a satisfying conclusion. So every line of, even though you're getting like pleasure, let's say you're Charlie Sheen and you're, um, you're, you're doing cocaine, right? So even though you're getting like some amount of pleasure from the cocaine, every single with every single line comes the desire for the next line of cocaine and it's never quite enough. So you find so he you he 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 you're just going to keep doing more and more cocaine until you find yourself in a huge pile of dukkha and misery. So the cocaine analogy is like an extreme analogy, but it's the same is true for all sensual um, pleasures. Okay, so it you can enjoy your food, but if you're if that's where you're seeking your happiness um, solely from the food, you're going to develop an unhealthy eating habit, and you're just going to keep like whenever you feel uncomfortable, whenever you feel restless. You're going to go to the pantry and, and, and stuff your, your face because that's your that's your. Um, that's what you indulge in. That's what the the pursuit of sensual happiness and sensual pleasures. So it's not that the sensual pleasures are wrong, are bad. Uh, it's just pursuing your happiness in them. Is. Um, is like a vulgar way to live it's it just like a it's an endless game of arriving and never being satisfied so it's, it's a, crazy how how widespread it is really like in society i was just just the norm 
and I don't know, like you, you, you talked about food. You just go to all you can eat buffets and you just see like the suffering, right? It's as if like people just they just need to eat just because they're there. And then just like five minutes later, everybody's just miserable and just feeling like stuffed and just guilty about having eaten so much. And it's just just I don't know. It's crazy to just I mean, go. Like, into- I don't think there's anything like to be fair. I don't think there's anything wrong with all you can eat buffets. Uh, oh no! Uh, <laughs> oh no! I'm, I'm, I'm just saying, like the, for, for me, it's just kind of like samsara, like just incarnate, and in, in the sense that yeah. people are just, just the deriving just dopamine. And, uh, I, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm not, I'm, yeah, I, I'm not judging people just go there. I, I go there myself. I'm just saying, like the attitude yeah, the about pro- the problem is if that your happiness lies in the you believe you believe that your happiness lies in the all you can eat buffet. Uh, you believe that your happiness is going to come from the next bite and then the next <laughs> one. And then, instead of going to, oh, oh, cool, I'm I'm already happy. I get to enjoy <laughs> a good time with some friends at all-you-can-eat buffet. I get to yeah. uh, soak it in. Appreciate There's a fear of missing out as well that people just, just like, oh, I need. So I, 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 I just I have to just try everything. But, yeah, I, I, yeah. I, I, I agree with you. There's a difference there. They don't yeah. want to just go with a blanket statement (laughs) yeah it well it just depends on where you're seeking your happiness from like if you're already happy to be there you sit down you enjoy the act of sitting down getting the menu browsing all the options right but the the problem comes when you're seeking the happiness from the from like whatever pleasures dopamine or whatever is released when you're tasting the food and then so you become addicted to that sensual pleasure that's just it's so fleeting it's like even like sex is the same way it's there it's there one moment it's gone the next it's it's completely like so unsubstantial and quick of a of a pleasure that it doesn't it's not going to make you happy but um yeah you can enjoy all you can eat buffet um especially if you're bulking um <laughs> moving some weights in the gym but but you know it just depends on your physical activity um you're right victor if you most of the people who are at an all you can eat eat buffet do not need to be eating that much food so it's <laughs> you can see that it's kind of like the the way that they're eating is coming from some kind of suffering and uh so i, I understand that uh, okay but yeah, no, Sorry I, to anybody who just goes. No, no, I understand uh, where you're coming from. I just wanted to uh, defend all you can eat buffets because um, they can be fun. <laughs> okay, okay. Um, okay, so the middle way. And what bhikkhus is that middle way awakened to by the Tathagata, which gives rise to vision? which leads to Nibbana. It is the eightfold, the noble eightfold path. That is right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration. This bhikkhus is the middle way awakened to by the Tathagata, which gives rise to vision, which gives rise to knowledge, which leads to peace, to direct the knowledge, to enlightenment, to Nibbana. Now this bhikkhus is the noble truth of suffering. Birth is suffering 
Aging is suffering. Illness is suffering. Death is suffering. Union with what is displeasing is suffering. Separation from what is pleasing is suffering. Not to get what one want, wants is suffering. And brief, the five aggregates subject to clinging are suffering. Okay, so I want to I want to focus on uh, union with what is displeasing is suffering and separation from what is pleasing is suffering. So it's not that the problem is that sensual pleasures are pleasing. The when they're pleasing, it's fine. But what causes the suffering is when they're over, right? In the moment of sensual pleasure, uh, it's not a problem. There's nothing wrong with enjoying food, enjoying sex, enjoying smoking a doobie, okay? Or smoking, like I've seen Robert do on a song of calls before. <laughs> um, there's nothing wrong with enjoying the finer things in life or what, what, what not have you. The, the, the thing that causes the suffering is the attachment to them because inevitably when they're gone, it's going to suck when they're gone because then what are you left with, right? And the same is true for relationships. So uh, I heard Domorado mention on the last Sangha call, um, the Dhamma uh, is about learning to say goodbye happily. So learn to say goodbye to all the things that are pleasing or, un or displeasing happily. Because everything is impermanent. So if you can just keep a wise mind, mindfulness about things, that when it's here, you know it's going to be gone. So you don't get latched onto it. You don't make it your source of happiness. Uh, you don't make whether or not you get a text back from this girl your your conditions for what if you can be happy or not. Because you may be getting a text back for weeks or months but then maybe the day comes when you stop getting a text back and then now you have suffer <laughs> because uh what you had is now gone um which you should have known was going to happen is what i'm saying so learn to say goodbye happily and then you can enjoy what life brings you without being attached to it and you can just be spontaneous there's always an every every day uh, is a new day. Every new things can happen, right? If you're too busy worrying about what you lost from yesterday, you're gonna miss what's right before your eyes that could happen today. And it's true for every single moment. Um, so yeah, so changing the mindset about where do we derive our happiness is fundamental uh, fundamental dhamma. Not to get what one wants is suffering. So that's just the opposite of losing what you have is wanting something that you don't have, uh, which is coming in the future. Then you won't be paying attention to what is here, what you do have. You have this breath. You have the breath of this moment and you can just enjoy breathing, right? If you're obsessed with uh, some kind of sexual fantasy or something uh, and, and you don't get what you want, uh, maybe you start, you become repressed, you, 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 you start becoming one of those guys that like hate women or something, and it manifests in all kinds of uh, dukkha ways. Instead of appreciating 
this breath that I have right now. <sighs> You're having sex with the universe as we know it. Okay. Like what is breathing? Like that's another thing, Victor, we're talking about taking things for granted. Breathing is the biggest thing we take for granted, right? We're literally exchanging uh, energy or getting like we're like we're deriving oxygen from the atmosphere around us using that to make chemical reactions in our body to produce energy and and life vitality and and consciousness so consciousness is dependently originated from breathing you stop breathing you're gonna pretty soon you're gonna go unconscious right <laughs> so you realize that the fuel of your own consciousness the very reason you are awake to this moment is because every single breath that you take so that that brings like a a very visceral uh understanding of how how good it is to actually breathe and uh it will it never fails you so you're never not breathing until you die right but when you die it's not going to be your problem anyways so um you find yourself in a stressful situation there's always an out the out is the breath just take a breath okay you don't know what to do uh you feel confused well the first thing to do is just breathe okay that's that's the foundation of uh of practice is breathing um and then you can relax your body when you uh get out of your head and get out of the thoughts that are causing so much agitation and mental suffering and just breathing you can start to relax and let go of uh uncomfortable tensions in the body it's, um sorry oh were you gonna say something yeah is there a way to how uh should I experiment with it to maybe see how deep I can breathe? I, I don't know. Yes. Yeah. So the more you experiment it with the the better. Because normally we breathe like unconsciously, right? We don't even think about how we are breathing, how much air we are breathing. So um the point is you shouldn't you shouldn't make a rule for yourself that I need to be breathing in one way or another, but experiment with the breath like a toy. So you can so you can try out hmm, what does it feel like to take deeper breaths? What does it feel like to take short breaths? And just, you know, run your little experiments and see how the body reacts and see how the mind reacts too. And then you may go ahead. No, no, crap. I interrupted again. Um it's okay. I like being interrupted. <laughs> I actually heard uh something about taking more quick breaths, like very fast, like is that what is that have you heard anything about that i don't, I don't yeah. really understand what that point of that kind of breathing is um that can get um some energy going um so that's often a technique to kind of oxygenate the brain and get like arouse some wakeful energy which is useful for meditation I mean, I'm really exaggerating the breathing so you guys so it comes across in the video. So I'm like trying to make a lot of noise when I do it. 
but breathing like that um uh it's it's a good antidote to drowsiness or dullness so if you find yourself uh, drowsy in your meditation play around with taking some short fast breaths um before you know it you'll be wide awake um your body has surpluses of energy uh that you have full access to you just have to bring it out um the same thing would happen if you get like for instance if you get if you go in a cold plunge or like an ice bath that will physically change the way that you breathe it will force you to breathe differently and the chances you'll be so cold that you won't be thinking about anything else but but breathing you'll be because you're because you're in an ice bath so put yourself in a mental ice bath and breathe that way um not as a rule but just experiment play with it as a toy try it out see how it feels so um you can i think it's better instead of uh every asking what the purposes of that is try to discover what the purpose is for yourself see what it does so uh the practice practice of meditation or practice of the dhamma it's a learn by doing uh activity um and then you may find oh um you may find oh i like this rhythm of breathing this gets me into like a I'm, i get in a rhythm and so i can kind of just follow this rhythm and it and it and it and it uh leads to my mind uh calming down and uh coming into my senses so the point is to experiment until you find that rhythm and then you can use that rhythm to get yourself into a state of uh samadhi uh you can uh unify the mind um with that rhythm that you created kind of like uh the rhythm of a drummer uh in a band the uh he starts the beat with the drum and that's the baseline of the music uh that everyone else riffs off and uh so so a beautiful song is created so um jhana and meditation is similar so start with the beat the rhythm of the breath and then the pt and sukha the pt and sukha is like the guitar solo and the guitar riff and the bass line the bass line is like the sutta i mean the bass line is like the sukha and the pt is like the electric guitar uh getting those high notes get getting that feeling going and the bass line is just like cool and like relaxed and calm like dun, 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 dun. Uh, so that's just a little music metaphor but um yeah play around with it avery okay uh let's get back to the sutta just 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 one last question regarding that um, yeah, yeah how to how, how to deal like with with boredom in like when dealing with a breath in, in the context of having had so much just just there's just so much st stimuli like in the world and just that the breath seems like too subtle or simple or not really giving yeah, that high exactly so how to deal with boredom is literally exactly what we're talking about at the beginning of the uh, beginning of the call like boredom is a mindset it's taking uh for granted what is going on because there's nothing to be bored about here like like whoa what what the fuck is this what is going on it's amazing like what how many th thousands of mental processes are going on right now that you can watch and be entertained by 
so many things. Your thoughts are going here, thoughts are going there, attention, moving around, uh, sights, sounds, touch, feels, all these things. It's a flood of information. You're just filtering it all out so you get bored. So the point is to look at what's going on that you'll never be bored. Um, so boredom is kind of like an attitude or a mindset. Okay, thank you. Okay. Is that a good answer or does that make no, sense? No, it is. It is. Okay. It's it's I think it's a matter of like also habit and practice and just just sticking with it. Yeah, I mean, it's not having the victim mentality as well that the Rod yeah. sometimes talks about. It's like, oh, poor me, I can't can't follow my breath. I can't be entertained by by my breath, and you just get stuck in this just just yeah, it's, it's, yeah. It's just the it's just the attitude that you have about it, or the thoughts okay. that you have about it. You can change the thoughts into being, wow, yippee, this is amazing. Like this is very entertaining. <laughs> um, when 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 uh, you're a young child, you probably let's say you're in your room by yourself um i mean chill you're probably still bored a lot of times when you're a child but a lot of times you would just get lost in your own imagination and create your own fun inside yourself right but when we grew up with all these rules that oh we can't just have fun by ourselves we need to go to hang out with other people we need to do a hobby we need something to occupy us in order to have fun. We didn't have those rules when we were kids. I remember just, I could have fun and entertain myself for hours, just within my own imagination. Um, um, so yeah, so it's, it's really a mindset and like the rules that you give yourself in your own mind. And the trick is just waking up to uh, when you're doing that. So wakey wakey when you're uh, creating your own boredom. Um, Okay. Now this bhikkhus is the noble truth of the origin of suffering. It is this craving which leads to renewed existence, accompanied by delight and lust, seeking delight here and there, that is craving for sensual pleasures, craving for existence, craving for extermination. So craving for existence and craving for extermination is just kind of like a weird way to say, ooh, I, I like this, and now I, I've had enough of this. So it's the, like, have you ever been to a movie that you're excited to watch that movie, and then there's like kind of like a boring part of the movie, and you're like, okay, I kind of want this to like get over with, like I'm kind of over it. So the craving for existence is when you're happy about going to that movie or excited for the movie, and then the craving for... um the craving for extermination is when you kind of like got bored of that movie and wanted to be done with. And so it's the same is true for life. You come into life like as a kid, all happy to be alive. And then you, you get disenchanted and sick of life and you want it to be over. <laughs> or like same with uh, this conversation. So we join the conversation. We're excited for a start. Um, we may go on for a while, but like at a certain point, we'll get sick of it and want it to be over. So the, the the mind works in cycles in this way. It wants something and then doesn't want it anymore. Um, let's see. Now this bhikkhus is the noble truth of the cessation of suffering. 
It is the remainderless fading away and cessation of that same craving, the giving up and relinquishing of it, freedom from it, non-reliance on it. So it's kind of just an illusion. And when you see past the illusion, uh, you're able to let go of it. So even when all of these cycles of minds and patterns of minds and wanting things and not wanting things are going on, you see that they're impermanent non-self and suffering. Uh, so you're not really uh, fooled by it. And you don't take it so seriously. You realize it's here one moment, gone the next. Um, don't take it personally. Don't take the happenings of existence per personally, because when we do take it personally, um, that's what causes our suffering. Now this bhikkhus is the noble truth of the cessation. Okay. Now this bhikkhus is the noble truth of the way leading to the cessation of suffering. It is this noble eightfold path that is right view, etc., um, right concentration. This is the noble truth of suffering. Thus bhikkhus in regards to things unheard before. There arose in me vision, knowledge, wisdom, true knowledge and light. This noble truth of suffering is to be fully understood. Thus bhikkhus in regard to things unheard before. There arose in me vision, knowledge, wisdom, true knowledge and light. This noble truth of suffering has been fully understood. Thus bhikkhus in regards to things unheard before. There arose in me vision, knowledge, wisdom, true knowledge and light. This is the noble truth of the origin of suffering. Thus bhikkhus in regard to things unheard before. There arose in me vision, knowledge, wisdom, true knowledge and light. This is the noble truth of the origin of suffering. Oh, this noble truth of the origin of suffering is to be abandoned. Okay, so um, we're going through the four noble truths here. And uh, it starts with the noble truth of suffering, which is pretty obvious. I mean, I think that's why we're all here, because we, <laughs> you know, we've, we've suffered and we want to find a way out, right? Um, I don't think any of us would be here if it wasn't for suffering, <laughs> right? The big kahuna, the reason why we start the spiritual path to begin with. Uh, so we already know that one. <laughs> this noble truth of suffering is to be fully understood. So we know it, but uh, we can always understand it more. Um, and then the noble truth of suffering has been fully understood. So we really see what suffering is all about, how the mind creates it. Um, where does it come from? Um, that's the next one, is uh, the noble truth of the origin of suffering. So when we really know the origin of suffering, then we can abandon the origin of suffering. So that leads to the good stuff, the good part. Uh, this noble truth of the origin of suffering is to be abandoned. So that's what leads to the third noble truth. Once you know uh, where suffering comes from, you can uh, take the right effort to stop doing that and stop creating that suffering. Uh, and then let me uh, move on. Thus bhikkhus in regard to things unheard before, there arose in me vision, knowledge, wisdom, true knowledge and light. 
this noble truth of the origin of suffering has been abandoned. Thus speakers, in regard to things unheard before, there arose in me vision, knowledge, wisdom, true knowledge, and light. This is the noble truth of the cessation of suffering. Thus speakers, in regards to things unheard before, there arose in me uh, knowledge, uh, wisdom, true knowledge, and light. <laughs> it's going to repeat over and over again. I'm going to see how fast I can say it. <laughs> this is this noble truth of the cessation of suffering is to be realized. Okay. I like how it words that. So the noble truth of the cessation of suffering is to be realized. So that word realized. What does it mean to realize something? Like uh, if you're playing a prank on someone and you're standing behind them uh, quietly, um, at a certain point, that person will realize someone is standing behind them. So that's the same way that you realize uh, the cessation of suffering. Um, you you be, you awake to it, so you're asleep, and then you come awake to uh, the cessation of suffering. You can also um, yeah, I lost my train of thought. I was gonna say something else, but I just forgot it. <laughs> All right, I'll keep going. <laughs> I just uh, now, I just now, like again, I think realization can happen many times. Like you can realize something the same. You can realize something that's like essentially the same concept again and again, but you can realize it differently every time. Like just now, I, right. I, you were talking, and I'm kind of spacing out, and I realized, oh yeah, wait, I'm breathing right now, and I get to play with my breath however I want. So yeah, again, again, but yeah. <laughs> Exactly. So that's that's kind of how that's uh, practicing correctly. Is instead of we realize something once, and then think we we got it and we we make it an object and make it a solid piece of knowledge that oh I've realized this now I now I'm enlightened or whatever right you become a guru charge people five hundred dollars for your retreats in Costa Rica. Um, <laughs> anyways, um, <laughs> the the point is to realize over and over again, this is suffering, this is the origin, this is the cessation, and this is the way leading to the cessation. And you realize it experientially. So it's not like it's not like you realize it once and then you're good. No, you realize it as much as you need to, as much as is here. So what is the suffering that is here? What is it? How is it coming about? So what am I doing that's kind of make, uh, proliferating that suffering? And then, OK, once I know what I'm doing, that's proliferating that suffering. I can stop doing that and then realize the end of that suffering. And yippee. Wow, this actually works. OK. And then before you know it, suffering arises again. OK, rinse and repeat. Start over. <laughs> that's the practice. So it doesn't mean you re you may re you, we realize the end of suffering many times throughout the day. Actually, um, it's just a, a normal uh, someone who's not practicing the Dhamma doesn't even realize that they're realizing, right? <laughs> so uh, the more that we pay like 
the more attention we pay to our experience and the way that we feel on the inside, uh, which can be scary uh, at times because you start to wake up to all the dukkha that's going on. But the more that we do that, the more that we can uh, realize how to um, bring an end to the suffering that uh, we are internally creating for ourselves. This noble truth of the cessation of suffering has been realized. This noble truth of the way leading to the cessation of suffering. This is the noble truth of the way leading to the cessation of suffering. Thus bhikkhus in regard to things unheard before. There arose in me vision, knowledge, wisdom, true knowledge and light. This noble truth of the way leading to the cessation of suffering is to be developed. Right. So the noble truth of the way leading to the end of suffering, namely the first three noble truths, is to be developed. So the last noble truth is about developing the prior three noble truths of recognizing, oh, this is dukkha. This is how I'm this is how it's being created, and this is how I can stop creating it. And then the fourth one is just developing that and realizing the way to develop those. Uh, fundamental principles. Um, this noble truth of the way leading to the cessation of suffering has been developed. Um, so once you keep developing it, the developing becomes developed and it creates an inertia for it that starts to rewire your programming. So if you do this enough times, it starts to do it on its own. That makes sense. Just like the habits of suffering. So all the habits of your suffering, you've been doing it enough times that it, you just do it unconsciously. So it's the same It's the same with the practice. So you do the practice enough times, it's going to start to have its own inertia. Of you're, you're just automatically doing it now. Um, so that's what, um, that's what it means to have developed uh, the way leading to the cessation of suffering. So long bhikkhus as my knowledge and vision of these four noble truths as they really are in their three phases and 12 aspects was not thoroughly purified in this way. I did not claim to have awakened to the unsurpassed perfect enlightenment in this world with its devas, Mara and Brahma, in this generation with, this, with its ascetics, Brahmins, its devas and humans. But when my knowledge and vision of these four noble truths, as they really are in their three phases and 12 aspects, was thoroughly purified in this way, then I claim to have awakened to the unsurpassed perfect enlightenment in this world with its devas, Mara, and Brahma, in this generation with its ascetics and Brahmins, its devas, and humans, the knowledge and vision arose in me. Unshakable is the liberation of my mind. This is my last birth. Now there is no more renewed existence. This is what the Blessed One said. Elated, the bhikkhus of the group of five delighted in the Blessed One's statement. And while this discourse was being spoken, there arose in the venerable uh, Kandana, the dust-free, stainless vision of the Dhamma, 
whatever is subject to origination is all subject to cessation. All right, so he realized impermanence in that moment. Whatever has a beginning has an end. And our friend uh, Michael from the chat uh, mentioned that Ajahn Pisano says a better translation from the Pali for this is all arising phenomena are all already ceasing phenomena. So whatever, everything that's arising experientially is already ceasing. Everything that happens is already coming to an end. The moment that it happens is the moment it's ending. Every thought is like this, every mental formation. Every feeling too. Every bodily sensation. Every sound. And when the wheel of the Dhamma had been set in motion by the Blessed One, the earth-dwelling devas raised a cry at Baranasi in Deer Park in Isipatana. This unsurpassed wheel of the Dhamma has been set in motion by the Blessed One, which cannot be stopped by any ascetic or Brahmin or Deva or Mara or Brahma or by anyone in the world. So no one can fucking stop this. It's just a force of nature, just reality unfolding. Like it, nobody can stop it. It's it's a uh, uh, yeah. I mean, I like that. It's pretty cool. <laughs> um, okay, let's see. Having heard the cry of the earth-dwelling devas, the devas of the realm of the four. Okay, more lore, right? Right, Victor. Here, here we, uh, we got some. Somebody's going to get enlightened at some yeah. point. <laughs> we, got, we got some juicy lore here. Okay. <laughs> Having heard the cry of earth dwelling devas, the devas of the realm of the four great kings. Okay. The realm of the four great kings. That's some lore right there. Um, raised the cry at Baranasi, this unsurpassed wheel of the Dhamma has been set in motion by the blessed one which cannot be stopped by anyone in the world. Having heard the cry of the devas of the realm of the four great kings, the Tavatimsa devas, the Yama devas, the Tusita devas. So these are essentially like angel angels or godlike beings that are abiding in heaven realms. Um, the Yama devas, the Tusita devas, the Nimanarati devas, the part, I'm not going to try to say that, Devas, the Devas of Brahma's company raised a cry at Baranasi in Deer Park at Isipatana. This unsurpassed wheel of the Dhamma has been set in motion by the Blessed One, which cannot be stopped by any ascetic or Brahmin or Deva or Mara or Brahma or by anyone in the world. Thus at that moment, at that instant, and that at that second, the cry spread as far as the Brahma world. And this 10,000-fold world system shook, quaked, quaked, and trembled. And an immeasurable glorious radiance appeared in the world, surpassing the divine majesty of the devas. Then the Blessed One uttered this inspired utterance. 
Kandana has indeed understood. Kandana has indeed understood. In this way, the venerable Kandana acquired the name Ana Kandana, Kandana who has understood. All right. That's uh, some good stuff there. What do you guys think about that? I wish I understood. Like, what are the devas? Like, what is? What are some of these things that are in these suttas? I don't. I don't. What is the, the devas? Are, are so like the devas are essentially like <laughs> angels or godlike beings. So maybe like if someone talks about like smoking a bunch of DMT and breaking through and seeing like the the machine elves or something. So like so these so these uh. <laughs> So these like beings, whatever, they may be real, they may not be, but they appear in every culture. So you can find oh, yeah. you can you can find these types of uh, beings in the lore of every it's just part of the human psyche. So what it's yeah, it's part of the archetypes of the unconscious or whatever. Um, it's, it's part of the human psyche. And what the Buddha is doing here is using these tools of the human psyche to like to invoke the power of this how powerful this teaching actually is that it goes it extends outward to everything so that's and, why he mentions like gods such as like brahma and yeah so the fundamental truths of the dhamma apply to any this realm and any realm you can imagine any realm that might exist or might not exist Whoa. so that's what that's kind of the significance of what is being said here it's not saying that like you need to believe in all these like creatures or whatever. Wow. <laughs> wow, that's interesting. Yeah. I love Scott's meme link preachings. Like <laughs> kind of like it's just the best. It, it but it's also like adequate like for our context, and that makes it just awesome. Just not like a dreary and you got to speak in the language of the times. So that's why I speak in memes. <laughs> so it's like, uh, yeah, I mean, that's the language that I grew up in is memes. <laughs> so I talk yeah, in memes. Just, yeah, it makes it awesome. Thank <laughs> and you, like, uh, Yeah, so do you, I'm, I'm guessing so do you guys. Like, I, um, oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Memes, the Dhamma is a meme. It really is. So what does memetics is a memetics is a very large field. Yeah, memetics. So the Dhamma is one of the biggest memes of human history ever. So like what does setting in motion the wheel of the Dhamma means? Meme. What does it mean? <laughs> it's starting a meme, right? He started a meme and the meme how does a meme spread? So it's one guy posts one image and then people like people see it and they spread it everywhere. That's that's the same way the Dhamma is. It's the only problem is the memes become distorted and stale. Like a group of people who aren't funny get a hold of the meme and they ruin the meme. That's like what happened to the Dhamma too. So all these people who don't under really understand it, they don't get the original meaning or the original joke. They, they, they repeat it, but in their own unfunny, shitty way, which is most of religion, right? Most of, uh, most of Buddhists. So, so the idea is to revitalize, uh, revitalize the original power of the meme. Okay. So memes go in cycles. There's like meta ironic periods. So there, there's the or, original meme. The meme gets ran into the ground, right? It's not funny anymore. 
and then it comes full circle. The meme becomes funny again because of it's so ironic just to have that meme. So that's kind of like what we're doing with the Dhamma now, uh, with the noble Dhamma. So the actual Dhamma that leads to um, the end of suffering, not just believing in this and that and practicing Kama and rebirth and stuff like that. But yeah. Memes. Uh, okay, so I think that's a good note to end it on, Is unless there's anything else uh, you guys want to talk about. Um, this has been a lot of fun. Any last words, Victor? No, just thank you. Yeah, it was, it's awesome. It's yeah, really no, thank you guys for coming. And Robert, are you there? Yeah, thanks so much, Scott. I really enjoyed this. This was great. Yeah, thanks for coming, man. I appreciate it. And Avery, it's yeah, good to course. see you. I'm uh, glad I came. Yeah, thanks for coming. Uh, and uh, yeah, go spread the wheel. Or I mean, go <laughs> practice the wheel of the Dhamma in your moment-to-moment -moment life. All right, guys. Have a good moment. Bye-bye. Great to see you guys. Take care. Bye.